Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Uh, I'm going to attempt a feat that I don't think I've ever done, and that is to preach the whole book of 1 Kings in one sermon. Uh, hopefully you ate a big breakfast and you're alert and you'll be able to hang with me. Um, actually, we're just going to give an overview of this book. I'm excited about uh, beginning this book. I hope that you have received the email and have at least attempted to begin to read through it. I did mention that last week, asking you to uh, begin reading so that this overview will make some sense. I'm, I'm um, making some assumptions that you've read and you know something of the background of the book. Otherwise, it would take us a long time to cover the ground that I hope to cover today. You might ask the question, why study the book of First Kings? Why don't we just focus on the New Testament? And um, there's several answers to that question. First of all, all Scripture is profitable and edifying, and so we can benefit from all of Scripture. All of Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the backdrop. He is the main story. It is His story. And so as we go through this book, we will see something of God's faithfulness to His people and keeping the covenant that he made with Abraham and with David, and particularly the covenant with David. In fact, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter chapter 7. And I want to read a few verses here which are very important in our understanding of 1 Kings. 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And I'm going to read just a few select verses here that hopefully will help us to understand um, a little bit about this covenant. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of great men who are on the earth. So he makes a promise that he's going to make him a great name. Down in verse 11, in the middle of the verse, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. You remember David wanted to build the temple. God said, no, your son will build the temple. Now God is saying through the prophet that the Lord will make a house for you. Verse 12, and when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers and rise up, your descendant after you who will come forth from you, I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. God promises to King David that there will be a perpetual, excuse me, a perpetual dynasty through David and through David's descendants. We see again and again God's covenant faithfulness through these kings and keeping his covenant with King David. And ultimately, all this points to Christ because Christ is the final king that has come and has come from David in fulfillment of this promise. So we'll be drawing those applications as we go through. We see the kings and the people claiming allegiance to Yahweh, but often falling away after idols, falling away after carnal um, pursuits. And God's long-suffering is on display again and again. And uh, throughout this book, we have such a compassionate God. And one of the goals of of this study, I hope, will be that we will come away with a greater appreciation for God's long-suffering for us. Because our hearts are prone to wonder. We're prone to go astray. And we need 
the confidence that we have a God that will not give up on us. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That's our encouragement as the people of God as we come to this book, that we have a covenant God who has covenanted with us as His people. And Jesus Christ has shed His blood for His people and He will not give up on us. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His help. Father, we do thank You so much for all of Scripture. We thank You that it is all inspired of You. And Lord, we desire to benefit today from the Scriptures. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to have understanding as we would just give something of an overview of 1 Kings and begin um, going through it expositionally. Uh, Next week, Lord, we pray Your blessing on this time. We ask that You'd send the Holy Spirit, remove distractions, O God, that we might come to Your feet to learn of you from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, some general observations. First of all, First Kings covers a large chunk of history, some 400 years. Originally, it was written as one book, simply Kings, and it was written on one long scroll. Um, in the Hebrew, the vowel points um, come underneath the consonants, and so you could fit a lot on one scroll. It wasn't until about the 16th century in the Greek translation of um, this that the, um, the, the vowels doubled the length of it. They needed two scrolls, and so they split the books up. Second, first and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are really treated as a continuous history of Israel. And they're in a section in your Bible, sometimes Bibles make this distinction, prophetic books, historical books. They're in a section called historical books in our Bible. And there is certainly a lot of history. And some of you love history. And so you're going to love going through this study. There's many details about the reigns of the kings and, and who succeeded them and so forth. But this book is much more than a history lesson. Much more than that. There's prophecy here as well. And there is a word for us from this book that we will see as we go through this. It's a mix of history, but flavored with prophecy. And the people of God, just as they needed God to speak throughout even first kings, we need God to speak to us. And it's not that we're looking for some new prophet. Where's the new prophet that we can go to hear from him? God has sent the final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has spoken in these last days. He is the final prophet, and He speaks to us. In Kings, there's the prophets Nathan, we see in chapter 1. Ahijah in chapter 11. Jehu in chapters 16 and following. And then ultimately, Elijah in chapter 17 and on. And the rest of the narrative is really about his ministry, isn't it? And the kings sort of fall to the background. But because of this mix of history and prophecy, the Jewish Bibles actually distinguish the former prophets and the latter prophets. And this is in a section um, listed as the former prophets. And that was from Joshua to Kings, speaking of the old history of Israel. So again, do we need a word from the Lord today? Absolutely. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come in the flesh. Now this... this uh, The book comes to us in the form of narrative, and uh, most of you kids know what a narrative is. You read books, at least my boys uh, read books. The basic elements of a narrative are what? You have characters, 
You typically have, have a plot, right? You have some kind of setting. What's the setting of the book? And so th- these are the kinds of things that we will look at here. But the book is not about those things in particular, but they're a vehicle to communicate a larger truth that is to be understood in the story. Um, the setting or the historical context of a narrative has various dimensions, physical, there's cultural dimensions, there's temporal dimensions, spiritual dimensions, and all of that that we want to take notice of. But is it important to keep in mind that the plot of the story, whether there's conflict or tension or what's going on, that the plot is directly related to the point of the message. Now, a narrative is not just a collection of moral lessons that we just fall into morality, that we just make all of this, okay, they did this, therefore we don't want to do that. It's more than moralism. You can fall into moralism there. And some basic thoughts about a narrative is that God is always the central character of all of Scripture. It is God's story, and we must be cautious at making Scripture directly address modern political or social issues or you know the new president and somehow making Scripture kind of just fit what's going on in current events. We have to be very careful not to do that, and I trust we will not fall into that error. Now, hopefully you've read some of the, the book um, it, via the email that I uh, encourage you to do so, but some specific observations, and these will make more sense if you've read it. If you haven't, it might not. We see again and again God's indictment and judgment against Israel because of their idolatry. The people would blend true worship. They'd come and they would repent. They'd give true worship to Yahweh as he deserves, and then they would begin to blend idolatry with that worship and, and fall away, and then God would um, send judgment upon them. I, th- I find it very interesting that after the completion of the temple, which is one of the high points in 1 Kings 8, that God appears to Solomon at the high point of his, his, his um, reign there. And what does Yahweh say? He comes to the temple and he says to Yahweh, or he says to Solomon, Don't go astray after other gods. Now, why does God say that? To this man of great wisdom who who hasn't gone after other gods um, up until that point. Why does he say that? Because he knows the heart of this man that he can. And it says something to us, I think, that even though we may be living our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord today, we need the warning. Don't go astray after other gods. Don't go astray after idols. Stay on the straight and narrow We need to examine our own hearts. I don't think it's a coincidence that John, when he writes his first epistle in 1 John, at the very end, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. And so we need to ask ourselves the questions, what idols have we concealed? What idols have we erected in our own heart that nobody else can see? What idols do we have in our house that we've erected that we would be embarrassed if others were to see? We need to examine ourselves. We need to look into the corners of our heart. I find it interesting in Judges. I remember reading it a month or two ago. And, and there was there, there's a, one of these, again, this, this cycle. You see it again and again through Judges. And the people of God, it's a time of revival. And it says they didn't destroy their idols, but they put them away. We'll put them in the closet and wait till we want to fall into idolatry again and we'll pull them back out. It's an amazing thing. We need to destroy idols and not hide them in the corners of our closet. We, as the people of God, even in the new covenant, we need 
this message today. And we need to be reminded that God is so patient with us. If you're honest about your sin, if you're honest about your walk before Him, He is so patient with us. And He's patient. He's been patient with His people. He gives grace and mercy again and again to the people of God. In fact, let me show you one place where His mercy is really on display. Turn to chapter 21 of 1 Kings. As you know, King Ahab was one of the most wicked kings that ever reigned in Israel. And in verse 19, it says, this is the Lord came to Elijah and and told him to say this. You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood even yours. Now look down in verse 29. Surely there is no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. You see God's mercy there. Ahab should have just been wiped out as as an object lesson before the people of God. This wickedness, this idolatry, this, this following your wife Jezebel into all of this and murdering Naboth, all of that, he should have just been wiped out. But God extends mercy even if for a season or a generation to Ahab. We have and we serve such a loving and compassionate God. In chapter 8, if you'll turn there, Chris read some of this for us. Solomon's prayer goes from verses 23 to 53. I'd encourage you to read it as a whole. We, We don't have time to do that now. But just a few of these verses... And verse 33, And when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you have given your fathers. Verse 46, again, And when they sin against you, not if, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. I love that parenthetical phrase there. And you are angry with them and you deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of an enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where you have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and we have acted wickedly. And if they return to you with all of their heart and with all of their soul in the land of their enemies, and have taken them captive, and pray to you toward their land, and you have given them to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house on which I have built your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their 
cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Again and again in Solomon's prayer, he anticipates the people of God going astray, hardening their heart again and again. But he's pleading, please hear from heaven when they come and they repent. So we see the gospel even in Kings again and again, this forgiveness that is granted, this restoration that is granted. In fact, one of the commentators brought this idea out. I thought it was interesting. I'll share it with you. David is like Adam. And by the end of 2 Kings, we see Israel die because of their sin, much like Adam died in the garden. You remember, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And God does not allow death to have the final word with Israel. And the nation will be resurrected from, and emerge from exile. You remember, they go into exile at the end of 2 Kings. Um, and then they come back from exile. God allows them to be resurrected. And so the book of Kings tells the story of the death and resurrection of David's dynasty, pointing to the greater truth that David's son, who also dies and is resurrected. So we have a king that will never die, who reigns today, never to die again, even the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful parallel there that one of the commentators brought out. So on the surface, we see that, that sometimes as you, as you read this and, and you think, God's apparent delay in justice, why is He not acting now? These people are acting so wickedly. And we can begin to think, now why is He delaying? And He's delaying because of the covenant He's made with Abraham, the covenant that He's made with David. It's not as though He winks at sin, He overlooks sin, He will surely deal with sin. But He is slow to anger the book reveals the glory of Yahweh in a fascinating way. Remember when Moses prayed, let me see your glory. Do you remember what happened? Do you remember what was said there? In, in Exodus 34, you don't have to turn there. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Compassionate God, a God who forgives, a God who is slow to anger, who abounds in loving kindness and truth. This is the God that we see in this book. Turn over to chapter 11. A couple of themes to look for here as well. <clears throat> and again, these types of phrases are repeated. Look in verse 38. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. The promise to all the kings, if you follow in David's footsteps, follow in doing what is right, observing the statutes, observing the commandments, then I will be with you. Then I will bless you. And then up in verse 20, <clears throat> 29, um, in the same chapter, it came about that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem and the prophet Ahijah, the Shiloh knight, found him on the road. Now, at Ahijah 
had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in a field. He gives him an object lesson. He's all alone. He has a brand new outer garment. And what does he do? He rips it up into 12 pieces and gives him 10. Essentially, this is a, the prophetic word that the, that the divided kingdom is coming. And you will be the leader of those 10 tribes in Israel. Look at what it says here. Take for yourself 10 pieces, verse 31. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city in which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and etc. God says this is his judgment, that this kingdom that we'll see in a moment is gloriously united, is now divided. And we'll look at that in more detail in a moment. So practical observations. Just from that little just sampling and as an introduction of the people of God and what they were dealing with and how they were so prone to unfaithfulness, we need to ask the question, how is our heart today? What are we living for today? What's the passion? What's the pursuit of your life? Are you, in a, are you at a place where you are departing for the Lord? Where you are in a state of declension when you're falling away from the Lord? That once you, you serve the Lord with great fervor, but now you're falling away. You're stumbling into sin. Yea, maybe even you're shackled into sin again and you don't know how it's happened. We need to guard our own hearts because we can be such idol lovers even today. And let's face it, in this you know, uh, 21st century American mentality, you know, that it's so easy. We want our private lives, don't we? You know, we, we interact with people on a, up to a certain level, but that's it. It's interesting in third world countries how different it is where you're just around people all the time. We had a missionary family with us a few days ago that's hoping to be sent to Africa full time. They're five kids, and we were talking, comparing notes from when I went to Africa and his three trips there, uh, the Williamson family, and, and, and how different the culture is because you're around people all the time. And so how we want to privatize our lives behind our doors and our gates to our driveway and, and all of our locks on our door, Africans are not like that. And, and it, it's, it's just so different. But what are we hiding? We must guard our hearts. We must reign in our minds from wandering to the edge of apostasy. We need to be challenged from the Word of God. We need to hear of the God who shows mercy when we repent. We need to hear that He extends. He's so long-suffering towards us and He extends the offer of mercy and restoration for Christ's sake but we must repent of our sins and we must come to Him. And for some, maybe, who have never believed, we must trust in the work of Christ. We need to come for restoration. We need to ask the Lord to tenderize our hearts, that we can have soft hearts as we go through this study. That the Lord would, maybe not right this moment, but in the, in the days and weeks to come, bring areas of idolatry to the surface of our hearts that we can deal with them and deal with them before God and by His grace. And be willing to repent of our sin, trusting in our majestic God. Well, come with me as we just do a flyover of the book uh, really quick. The place of Solomon and wisdom in First Kings, the first 11 chapters. The opening chapters highlight the wisdom of Solomon. If you've read those, it's very plain. In chapter 1, you have a threat to the throne with Ananijah. 
um, that's very short-lived. And Solomon is indeed um, enthroned on the throne uh, with King David right before he uh, dies. And these chapters highlight the wisdom of Solomon. And and wisdom is the royal virtue. It is the the par excellence virtue, and and Solomon has it. You you probably know that story in 1 Kings 3. We're not going to read every one of these, but where Solomon prays. And remember what he says. God says, ask whatever you want. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. He asks for discernment. And of course, the Lord says in verse 10, because you, I will give you your request, but because you have not asked for riches and a long life, I will give you that also. The Lord lavishes upon him. Proverbs 4 says, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all of your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace and she will present you with a crown of beauty. In chapter 4, you see really this, really the high point, the united kingdom, the true harmony. And verse 20 there, look at it again. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore in abundance. And they were eating and they were drinking and they were rejoicing. They were happy. They had it all. They're enjoying all of God's good gifts that He gives to us. And, and there's harmony. There's a united kingdom here. And it's, 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 it's a beautiful picture in chapter 10. In verse 23, remember Queen Sheba comes. She wants to see this wisdom on display. And in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 10, so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. This is the apex of Solomon's reign. Here all the kings are wanting to come. He's richer than anyone else. He's filled with wisdom. He has it all. But you know the story just a few verses down in chapter 11. He goes astray. falls into idolatry. And it's very interesting of the careful reading of 1 Kings. When Solomon passes off the scene, so does wisdom. In fact, the word occurs 21 times in chapters 1 to 11 and no times, no, no more occurrences uh, after Solomon passes off the scene. And so we will learn that royal wisdom, which is emphasized so much in these first 11 chapters, ultimately fails to deliver. Israel's hope for restoration and blessing in life does not lie in human wisdom, no matter what height it attains. Wisdom, yet ultimately ineffectual to secure the health and salvation that Israel needs. So we see that, is, that wisdom in and of itself is not enough. Okay, And so now, the place of the law. In Deuteronomy 17, is, um, Moses is giving the law to the people of God. You don't have to turn there. Um, it, he says this, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, speaking of the kings, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all of the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up 
against his countrymen so that he will not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. That's the prophetic word back in Deuteronomy before they even inherit the promised land. This is what a king is supposed to do. To have God's law, God's commandments central. He's to have that and and to have that before him. This text requires any king of Israel to keep the law all of the days of his life. In fact, Joshua 1.8, at the beginning of Joshua, what does it say? There's the promises that that the conquest will be successful and that there will be prosperity so long as what? He keeps the law before him and observes all that is written in the law. So we would expect as you read here, as you read about the various kings, and then he had the law read, and then he was reminded of this from the law, we would expect to see that the very kings of Israel would be relying on the law as a a guide and as statutes, but we don't see that until the very end of 2 Kings with the reforms of Josiah. In 2 Kings 23-25, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. You see, throughout Israel's monarchy, the law is neglected. It is forgotten. And here, when it is finally recovered at the end of 2 Kings through the reforms of Josiah and all the good that he's done, it's too late. It's too late. Even the most... Thorough obedience to the law does not appease God. Judgment is coming. Exile is happening. The temple is going to be destroyed. And so when Israel sins, wisdom can't save Israel. The law-keeping cannot save Israel. Now let's consider the temple. The temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, a very important chapter. It records the dedication ceremony of Solomon's temple, which took years to build. There was so much gold there. And... The temple adds a new dynamic to the daily life of the people of God, especially in the covenant arrangements between Yahweh and the people. And Solomon's prayer, we've already considered it, includes several of the covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28. And um, you'll have to just read, read that with that in your, the background of your mind. And he asked God to intervene when they sin, and we've already read part of that prayer and the temple becomes sort of a, a mediator between God and the people. God even responds in chapter 9, in verse 3, Then the Lord said, I have heard your prayer, this big long prayer, I have heard your prayer and supplication, which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house with which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. But maybe you've noticed that if as you read Kings, that suddenly the temple is not mentioned much, is it, after here? In fact, the temple's not mentioned much at all throughout the rest of, of first and second Kings. It's mentioned, but ultimately it's destroyed. It sort of falls to the background. It, it's just kind of there, and there's like it's kind of like Fort Knox. There's just a lot of gold there that we can pull out as we need it, you know, make withdrawals and pay off the Gentile enemies, you know, here and there. And that's that's how you see the temple and the gold of the temple being used. 
In fact, no Davidic king prays in this temple again until all the way till Hezekiah from Solomon's prayer. It's all the way till Hezekiah when he was threatened by the Assyrians. And sadly, one generation later, Hezekiah's son erects idols inside of the temple. It's bad enough to have them outside of the temple. And so it just goes from bad to worse. So after 400 years of neglect and abuse of the temple of God, what happens at the end of 2 Kings? King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple, and the people of God are carried off into exile. So what does all this point to? Well, we're forced to face some plain realities. Where does salvation come from? If it's not from the great wisdom of Solomon, if it's not from, from faithful law-keeping, if it's not from the temple and, and you know, going to the temple, where does salvation come from? Well, we have to remember, wisdom doesn't save Israel. Law-keeping doesn't save Israel. First Kings makes it clear that Israel, having broken the covenant, faces covenant curses. And just like Adam, the day you eat it, you shall surely die. And so too, they must face this. But we see all of this points to the gospel. Because today as Christians, as we read and we study this book, we see how 1 Kings is prophetic in this regard. As you read it, it anticipates and it foreshadows a a king that will come, that will never fall into sin, that will never fall into error. It anticipates the Lord Jesus Christ. First and second Kings is not primarily historical or prophetic, but it is evangelical in that it points to Christ. It reveals the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is patient and long suffering. The God who's, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So what wisdom, what the law, and what the temple could not do. God has done and fulfillment of all of his promises. Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. The book hints at what Israel really needs and by God's grace, Israel finally gets a king who not only possesses wisdom, but is wisdom the Lord Jesus Christ. Kings shows that perfect law-keeping cannot undo centuries of outright rebellion and idol worship and unfaithfulness to Him, but it proclaims the incarnate Son of God who by His Spirit writes His law on the tablets of human hearts. We can't keep God's law perfectly and to the, the letter, but He writes it on, on our, the tablets of uh, human hearts and so that we obey now out of gospel obedience because all of that he has done for us we seek to please him and to glorify him at the end of kings we see that the temple is destroyed to rubble and it's not as though we look for some new temple now you remember after exile they they built a new temple and it was just uh, just so puny compared to the Solomon's temple. In fact, those who were alive before exile moaned and groaned if you read the minor prophets there about the new house of God. But we as the people of the new covenant, we're not looking for a new physical temple. We look to to a living temple. The people of God gathered together, made up of believers in the new covenant. A temple not made with hands. That's what we look to. We see how all of this points so beautifully to the New Covenant and to us as New Covenant Christians. Well, 
Very quickly, chapters 12 to 22, we see God's judgment. We see the divided kingdom that comes. Um, There's many texts throughout here that speak of God being jealous and full of wrath against sin. And and He does. And again and again, the Lord uh, warns Israel that they provoked Him to anger about going after other idols. But but the impression you get as you read is that, that God delays His justice. He delays the carrying out of His judgment for the sake of mercy. He doesn't compromise His justice, but He delays. Sometimes you can read and you think, God, you're being so indulgent to these people that deserve to be wiped out. And we've already read the verses at the end of chapter 11 which speak of that the divided kingdom, the northern and the southern kingdoms being separated. Jeroboam, uh, who would lead this division, rises to fame in 1128. I think we've already read it. Where he was a valiant warrior when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. So this is his rise. That's his rise to prestige. And then we've already read what Ahijah the prophet says with the garment and and ripping it up and, and the ten tribes. The northern kingdom is worse than the southern kingdom. They're both bad. But the northern kingdom almost constantly is committing idolatry and breaking the first and second commandments of God. Jeroboam began the sinful trend when he erected these shrines to golden calves throughout the kingdom and the people would worship that. In chapter 13, um, it says, now behold, in verses 1 and 2, now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense to you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Here is a prophetic word that one is coming. One is going to come and take all of this high places and and all these sacrifices being offered to idols. And and this this one that is going to come, Josiah, by name. And so he's actually named here. And so you turn over to 1 Kings 14, you expect to see Josiah. But Josiah doesn't come for hundreds of years. And in God's wisdom and in His plan, it's not until 2 Kings 22 and 23. Now, the southern kingdom was different. Um, You had periodic revivals led by uh, certain kings, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah, um, where they would fear the Lord, where they would repent, but still they were in bad shape. So all of this summary is to do this is to highlight we must remember the context of the Davidic covenant that we began with in 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a perpetual dynasty in Israel. And this promise forms a powerful backdrop as we go through this book. That's always in the background, and it helps explain God's long-suffering towards people and their sin. Chapters 15 to 22, really the decline just continues from bad to worse. Elijah, the prophet, is called to minister during this very dark time. And the kings really fade into the background during his ministry. And we'll focus on that when we get there. Well, let's attempt to give some points of application, at least for us today in this summary. Um, If you've read the book and, and if you've read some of the chapters, 
Hopefully that helps to connect some dots. If not, take the outline, look up some of the verses as you read it so that it will help to make sense. We've tried to hit the high points and the themes and the dominant themes um, of the book. Two thoughts of application for us today. The first is this. The people of God, God's people, still are prone to run after idols. I've already alluded to this. And you may think that, well, idolatry is something of ancient times where there's a golden calf and and so forth. Or maybe idolatry is something that, that in a third world country you see that and superstitions and all of that. But idolatry is much more than that. And I submit to you that it is very prevalent today. What is idolatry? It's anything that becomes comes between you and God. It can be a spouse. It can be a career. It can be a shiny car. It can be anything that's going to consume your time and draw you away from God that comes between you as a professing believer of the Lord Jesus Christ and your God. Anything that comes between there. Isaiah 45 says, There is no God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. God is holy and He demands worship to Him and to Him alone. So we must be careful not to allow any image, any idea, any object, anything to come between us and God. John Calvin says the human heart is a factory of idols. goes on to say, Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. Experts, because we're born in sin. So, beware of idolatry. Secondly, our God is faithful to his promises. Our God does not renege on any promises whatsoever. Jesus Christ died for the sins of His chosen people. He is the one that makes us acceptable before a holy God. We are covered with His blood. We are cleansed. We have been redeemed from slavery to sin. And our God does not change. He is immutable. He is not fickle like us. We change from hour to hour, sometimes minute to minute, day to day. God does not change. In Lamentations The Word of God says the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you believe that He is faithful today? Do you believe that He will never break any of His promises that He has made to His people today? You see... These promises, even even the promises to Israel, we are the Israel of God today. Galatians chapter 3 says, So it is those who are of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. And again, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. So we are the Israel of God if you're in Christ today. And so these promises are for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, If we are faithless... And we often are. He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Do you find your satisfaction in God? Do you find your satisfaction in Him alone? Can you say, as Lamentations would go on, the Lord is my portion that I will not let go of. Can you say that? Do you long for that? Do you seek to find satisfaction in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we need to destroy the idols of our heart. We need to destroy 
the idols in our home. We need to destroy and rip away anything that would come between us and God so that we might live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that He has done for us. That we might live for the glory of God. And if you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you that He is a beautiful Savior. He has come to die the horrible death. He's lived a perfect life. He's kept God's law perfectly. He has all the wisdom of God. And He has come to purchase sinners. And so if you have not trusted Jesus Christ today, today is the day of salvation. Come to Him. Simple faith in Jesus Christ that He has accomplished all. Now, if you're coming to Him and you say, well, I guess I'll add Jesus to my life, but I have all of these good works and things that I've accomplished in my life. Surely God will accept me because I've got this and this. No, we have to relinquish all of our good works. There's no work that you have done apart from believing in Jesus Christ that is acceptable to Him. All of the church attendance, all of the, uh, everything that you might want to put confidence in will not help you in your standing before God. You must confess, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That is the prayer that He will not turn away. The prayer of the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's beating his breast. He's not like the Pharisee that says, I'm so glad I fast. I'm so glad I did that. No, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He will not turn, turn you away. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We do thank You for Old Testament narratives such as the book of 1 Kings. Lord, we pray that You would give us understanding as we would go through this in the weeks to come. Lord, we pray that You would that Your Word would come alive to us and that we would see how it applies to us. We pray for any hearer that may not know You, Lord. How I pray that You would convict by Your Spirit even now Lord, that You would even cause any here who do not know You to be in a, a place of despair and utter frustration until they come to experience the peace that can only come from Jesus Christ and knowing Him. Oh Lord, we pray that You would work in our midst. In Jesus' name, Amen.